For six weeks, we've been working on a particular verse that Jesus spoke in Matthew 16. He said to follow him. And then in the next verse, he said that we could find our life. And throughout this series, we've been concerned that a lot of people in life are just winging it. They're making it up as they go and burning up years without realizing what their destiny is. And that could be happening to you and me. In fact, honestly, I feel to some extent that's me. I feel like I've discovered some of my life, but I feel like there's still much yet to be discovered. And what Jesus tells us is that if we follow him, we will get to that place of, of discovering. I think I shared with you one week, the Greek word for discover there is heurisco. If, you're, if you like science, you'll know of a term called the eureka effect. The eureka effect is to be able to discover something that was previously unable to be understood. And that's the, the word that Jesus gives us, the heurisco, the eureka word. He is saying that if we follow him, we will be able to make sense of something that was previously unable to be understood, which for many of us, that's life. And, and that's, that's a very attractive concept to us. And so when it comes to following Jesus, we need to understand that what he's talking about is just doing what he does, living out how he lived, lived his life. And what we've done to prepare you for this series is we've looked at the six areas that Jesus talked about most frequently, how he lived, what he taught, uh, what he communicated to people through his actions. And we've said, okay, we're going to follow Jesus to those places because in that we will discover our lives. The first time we talked about something like that, we talked about authenticity because I believe that's where it all starts. You can't find your life until you're determined that you're going to be real who you really are. And then money. Money's a big deal. Jesus talked about it a lot, more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. And Jesus wanted us to make sure that we're in control of our money and not our money in control of us. And he wanted to, there's nothing wrong with being rich. He just wanted to make sure that when we utilize money, we utilize it with an eternal perspective. And then Jonathan Mark talked to you about humility. You know, Jesus is saying there's nothing wrong with wanting to be great. He just said if you want to be great, you need to become everyone's servant. Being truly great doesn't mean having your own reality show and living in Beverly Hills. That isn't great. That's just famous or infamous. But greatness means you change the world. And Jesus said nothing wrong with that. Just be willing to be everyone's servant. And last weekend, I shared with you that if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to follow him to forgiveness because it's a flawed, broken world. And unforgiveness shuts everything down. Forgiveness makes a way to go on. But today, we're going to follow Jesus to the pinnacle. We're going to talk about the most important place Jesus ever went and the most important place he ever calls us to. And I honestly believe this. And, and, and forgive me for breaking a sentence, but I want to follow a flight plan with you before we start today. It would be real easy for me to talk to you on this topic on an emotional level. And I could tell emotional stories that would tug at our heartstrings. But I don't think that's what's going to help us. I think we're going to have to have our understanding challenged. Because this is a decision that you have to make. You're going to have to decide whether or not you're going to follow Jesus to this place. But having said all that, this place is so important that I really believe most of our life, this life that we're trying to discover, is bound up in this one thing. Jesus is calling us to a place called love. If we're going to follow Jesus, we are going to follow him to love. First of all, Jesus was love. He was God come in the flesh. He didn't begin in Bethlehem. He was creator God who came and walked in human flesh and lived among us. And here's what the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love. I love that word or that expression. All of us know what it's like to have someone love us, but something caused that love to fail. Maybe we did something wrong. Maybe they just changed their minds. But Jesus didn't have that kind of love. 
He has a love that never fails. Aren't you glad that he loves you that way? I've given him a million reasons not to love me, but thankfully he is full, full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Um, not only did Jesus come full of love and exemplifying it, but he also taught us to love. If, if you look throughout the scriptures, Jesus is always leading us to love. By the way, let me just say this, and, and, and I'm not going to sermonize on this, but I will just tell you, you will never follow Jesus to hate. If you wind up at hate, you didn't follow Jesus there. You will never follow Jesus to racism. Jesus is never going to racism. So if you wind up with racism in you, However that happened, I mean, there may be cultural elements of your life that, that brought you there, but it wasn't Jesus. You will, and this is a really important one. We live in a culture that almost makes a cottage industry out of disdain. Late night comedy shows, cable television, tele, uh, radio talk shows, and definitely now social media. It's almost like the more you can express disdain, the more attention that you get in the world. But I will just tell you today, you never follow Jesus to disdain. Jesus is never ripping anybody, he's never putting anybody down, and he's never making fun of anyone. So if we ever go to a place where we have hate or racism or disdain or mockery, we need to realize we didn't follow Jesus there. He's never going there. He's always going to love. If, you're, if you say, Mark, I'm just a sarcastic person. All right, that might be a fact. But you didn't follow Jesus there because Jesus is always headed toward love. Now... Let's go to a place that, that's really, I guess, the next place for us to go because not only did Jesus model love, he taught us to love. I want to show you four places that Jesus teaches us to direct our love. First place, Mark 12, 28. Of all the commandments, which is the most important, Jesus was asked. He replied, the most important commandment is this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and your strength. So first place to show our love is God. You know, sometimes people will say, well, I believe in God, is if that's the end of the story. Jesus said, no, we're to love God with everything we have. Number two, he goes on to a new place. This is in Mark 12, 31. The second command is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, when we hear the word neighbor, we think about the person who lives next door to us or across the street. But just so that we'll understand what Jesus was talking about, a neighbor is anyone who comes near some of you will remember that Jesus was asked the question, who is my neighbor? And that launched him off on the story of the Good Samaritan. What is the story of the Good Samaritan? It's about two people who came into each other's space. So your neighbor is just anyone who comes into your sphere. There's 7 billion people on the planet, but a whole lot of them are never going to come into my space. But there are some who do. My family, my friends, my coworkers, people I meet, people I may just run across somewhere in the country. They come into my space. And here's the deal. Some of them are easy to love, and some of them are not easy to love. But Jesus said, love them anyway. Love anybody who comes into your space. By the way, if you're a Christ follower, have you ever considered that perhaps the people who come into your space come in there by the will of God? Perhaps God has brought somebody into your space because God knows they need your love. You say, well, Mark, they're so difficult to love. But how do you know that God didn't bring some hurting person into your sphere into your sphere, so that they could experience your love? And now the third place Jesus directs, directs us to, to love, and that's to fellow believers. This is in John 13, 34. This is the night of Jesus' arrest. And he said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples 
Not if you're Baptist, not if you're Catholic, not if you belong to a particular Bible study. By this, all men will know that you're my follower if you love one another. The third place Jesus is talking to us about loving, if you're a Christ follower, is other Christ followers. I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of times I have an easier time loving atheists than I have some Christ followers I know. You know? And, and so Jesus is telling us, hey, it's very important as God's family to love each other. Now, work with me for a moment. When Jesus said, he'd been with his disciples three years but at this point, a new commandment I'm giving you. You think that was the first time he'd ever told them to love each other? Not at all. See, this is the night he's arrested. He's going to die on a cross, and then he's going back to heaven. Here is what I believe Jesus is saying to them and to us. He's saying, guys, up till now, my love has been the glue that's held us together. I've been the one who's had your back. I've been the one who's put up with your lousy moods. I've been the one who's forgiven you when you've done stupid things. I don't want to put words in Jesus' mouth, but I think this is what he's inferring. Basically, he's saying, this group is held together because I've loved you. I'm about to leave. Now, I want you to love each other the way I have loved you. By the way, this is right after he took a towel and a basin of water, and he washed everybody's feet. Jesus is saying to you and me, I want you to love each other just like I would love. I want you to have each other's back the way I would have your back. I, I want you to do for each other what I would do for them if I were here. So, love God. Love anybody who comes into our sphere. Love fellow believers. And this one, boy, this one knocks our socks off. Matthew 5.43, Jesus said, You've heard that the law says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Love your enemies? Wow, no doubt about it. Jesus said it. So we could talk about all those a lot more, but here's the bottom line that I come to. If I'm to love God, love anybody who comes close, love fellow believers, and even love my enemies, who does that leave out? I mean, who can I say, I don't love this person because as near as I can tell, that pretty well covers everybody. Well, that aside now, now that we know that Jesus teaches us to love, I think we need to spend a few moments talking about what is love. When Jesus says we're to love people, what does love mean? Now, guys, I know you don't get up early, drive many of you halfway across the state of Kansas to hear me do a language lesson. But you do know the New Testament's written in Greek. We speak English. We bring over Greek words to English words. A lot of times, a lot of what we try to bring over doesn't, doesn't work. So when I tell you to love someone... What we have is we have an American context of an English word. So what I want to do, if you'll just grant me a few moments, I want to share with you five Greek words that could be translated into our English word and then show you what Jesus is talking about. I'm going to start from the bottom and go to the top. The first word is epithemia. And between you and me, it just means red hot lust. It means focus, passion. And we all know what that is. But honestly, isn't a lot of the usage of the word love in the English language today, culturally. Isn't it about that? I mean, just keeping it real, a lot of songs that say, I want to love you, really, love there is kind of a euphemism, let's be honest, for sex. And so that's epithemia. It's just focused passion. It's lust. And then there's the word eros. Eros is romance. It's just what makes a guy and a gal look across the table, stare at each other, and feel, feel that funny feeling in your stomach. We, 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 this is Valentine's Day weekend. And so many of you guys, you're very romantic, I hope. It's kind of quiet. You did do something romantic. Right? <laughs> and, 
You guys know we have services on Saturday and Sunday, so yesterday being Valentine's Day, Marios and I couldn't go out, so I took her out on Friday. And I wouldn't have known this if the Eagle hadn't had this in the paper this week. But the 13th of February, uh, some of you read the article, is known as Mistress Day. So I took Mary Alice out to eat, you know, and, and, and so the server comes to our table and says, is this a special occasion? And so I, that's when I told Mary Alice that we were out on Mistress Day. <laughs> it has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon. I don't know. <laughs> Eros is romance. And, and that can be good or bad. Depends on if the situation is healthy or unhealthy. So that's the second form of love. Store game. Storge is an interesting word. It means natural love. It's that sort of sympathy that we have in general. Storge is what makes you swerve to miss a squirrel. You do do that, don't you? <laughs> For you guys who don't swerve to miss squirrels, let me give you another definition. It's that feeling you're going to have today when you go home and you have a favorite chair and you plop down in it. Storge is just a good feeling that you have toward the human race. It's what makes you sympathetic, what makes you cry at a movie when there's a romantic moment or there's a sad moment. Interestingly, in the Bible, Scripture says that in the last days before Jesus comes, there will be a lot of people without natural affection. And the Greek word is astorge, uh, negative prefix a before the word that means natural affection. So what do we have so far? Epithemia, which is lust. Eros, which is romance. Storge, which is sort of natural sympathy and natural affection. And now the fourth word for love, which is the next, really one of the highest words for love. And before Jesus started teaching, it probably pretty much was the highest concept of love in the Greek language. And that's the word phileo. We get our word friendship from that. It's what makes us bond with somebody else. It's what makes us have something in common. It's what makes us want to be around someone, that feeling of friendship. But as I hinted a few seconds ago, when Jesus came along, he started teaching about love, and none of those words were what he was talking about. He was talking about a kind of love that brought about a word that became almost exclusive to the Christian community, and that's the word agape. Now, interestingly, when you look in the Bible, agape love is rarely defined because it's hard to define. The best definition I can give you is it is a self-sacrificial kind of love. It is the kind of love that not only bonds with another person, but sacrifices for their interests. Some of you like to study your Bible, and you know that in the Bible there is a chapter in which the Bible just lists all the things that agape love does. 1 Corinthians 13. Again, if you're a Bible student, you'll know of that as the love chapter of the Bible. Again, it doesn't say what it is. It just tells us what it does. This happened a long time ago. It's over 10 years ago when our church was a lot smaller. I think we only had about 1,000 or so coming back then. And we only had two morning services. And so I wanted to do something kind of fun. I wanted to have a, a vow renewal Sunday where people could just come up and fill the stage, and I would lead couples who wanted to renew their vows in a vow renewal. And we had a little fun with it. I said, if you can still get into your talks or... Your wedding dress, you can wear that. If you want to rent one, you can rent it. You know, you, if you want to come in shorts and cut, cut off some t-shirt, that's fine too. I just said, if you want to have your vows renewed this weekend, we're going to renew our vows. And people sent forward wedding pictures, and we had them up on the IMAX screens while everybody was collecting up on stage. And then we harvested shots of couples holding hands and saying their vows, and they were on the screens, and everybody went down. It was a lot of fun. But anyway, I remember this. As I got ready for that, that service, I thought, 
I don't want to do the standard vows that I'd done hundreds of times. I began to wonder, what, what would it sound like if, if a man and a woman stood on stage and they vowed to love each other with what 1 Corinthians talks about? What if we vowed agape love? What would those vows sound like? And I remember where I was. I was sitting in my basement with my laptop, and in 10 minutes, I typed out what vows would sound like. And the irony of that is, Newspring produces a lot, of, a lot of materials that are sought after from all over. But of all the materials we've ever produced, the number one requested item that we've ever produced at Newspring is those wedding vows. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times we've had requests for those vows. And I'm not brilliant. I just followed 1 Corinthians 13 and wrote, this is what it would sound like if two people were vowing their vows of love. Some of you actually may have had these vows at your wedding if you got married at New Spring because most people choose them. Here they are. You want to hear them? By the grace of God's Holy Spirit, I will be patient and kind to you. Because I love you, I won't demand my own way or hold past faults against you. I will be loyal to you, always faithful from my heart. I will always believe the best about you. I will always defend you. My love for you will never end. I don't do weddings anymore, but I remember back in the day when I did, you know, the, the bride and groom, it's an emotional moment, you know, and the bride may, you know, have a tear coming down, but there was always a moment where I knew I was going to get the groom. I mean, I've seen big, tough, burly guys just start crying, and I could set my watch by it. It was one line out of those vows. Do you know what the line was? I will always believe the best about you. I will always believe the best about you. Now, when the Bible talks about love, loving God, loving our neighbor, loving Christians, and loving our enemies, that's the kind of love Jesus is talking about. That kind of love that says, I will be patient and kind to you. I will be loyal. I will always believe the best about you. I will always defend you. That is the kind of love Jesus is referring to. Now, here's the thing. Throughout this series, I've tried to be very practical because I hate it when I go hear a minister and he, he gets into some high-flown theological talk and I can't, I can't figure out how to take it to work tomorrow. So let's, let's make this real practical. Jesus has said this. He said, if we, if we follow him, we will discover our life. We know he's going to love. He's always going to love. What is it about love that helps me discover my life? You know the answer now if you'll think about it. We normally believe that the opposite of love is hate. But now that we know how the Bible defines love, we know that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. So here's the way it works. If you're looking for a construct that makes it practical, here it is. Love expands my world. Selfishness shrinks it. Every time I love, my world gets a little bigger. Every time I'm selfish, my world gets a little smaller. Now, that's countercultural, and we've talked about that from day one in this series. If we're going to find our life, we're going to have to go counterculture. Our culture tells us if you want your world to be big, don't let anybody take anything away from you. Hold on to your stuff. Get as much of other people's stuff as you can get. But no, love expands your world. Selfishness shrinks it. I'm no intellectual, but one of my favorite thinkers is C.S. Lewis. Many of you have read his books. Some of your kids have read Chronicles of Narnia. But this idea of love expands our world and selfishness shrinks it, he speaks about it in a, with, with words I can't, I can't rise to. So let me just read what he had to say. Lewis said, To love is to be vulnerable. 
Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it, your heart intact, you must give it to no one. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it safe in a casket or a coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, unredeemable. The only place where you can be safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Wow, couldn't have said it better. Love enlarges, selfishness shrinks. Well, with that in mind, I'm guessing about right now, most of us are saying, okay, Mark, I'm, I'm open to love, but how do I know if I love, how do I know if I love God? How do I know if I love people? Especially people that are difficult to love. Well, Jesus gives us a couple of slow pitches. If, if you're looking for homework today, you know, and you're buying into this, and which I hope you will, because this is just clear, pure oxygen that Jesus is giving us. If you want to know how to love people, then let me give you two examples. And here's the first one. This is from Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Jesus said, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of, of all that's taught in the law and prophets. Now, I'm not a good communicator. I would love to be a good communicator. If I was, I could explain things, and I struggle. But I'm going to take a crack at something anyway. Here is what is inbred in us, even though we may not articulate it. In our relationships with other people, we tend to see ourselves as the recipient and the other person as the measuring standard. Now, again, like I said, we don't say this, but this is how it works. It's like it's a referendum on me, and I'm going to make the other person the measuring standard. If that person is nice, then I will be nice. If that person is kind, then I will be kind. If that person is lousy, then I'll react in a negative way. And, and honestly, I think this is, what, this is what governs most marriage relationships. You are the measuring point. I am the recipient. Jesus flips this. He inverts it. And he says, that person is the recipient, and I am the measuring stick. So the question is, here, this is how I should treat you. Instead of looking to see how you behave, I decide I'm going to treat you the way I want to be treated. When I talk about you, I'm going to think about how would I like to be talked to or how would I like to be talked about? How would I like somebody to talk behind my back? How do I want someone to treat me? How do I want someone to behave toward me when I screw up? You see, I'm, I make myself the measurement and you the recipient. So I'm not thinking about, have you been good? Have you been bad? Are you happy? Are you unhappy? Are you mean? Are you not mean? I'm thinking, how do I want to be treated? And I begin to treat everybody in my life the way I want to be treated. I talk about you the way I want to be talked about. I talk behind your back the way you want people to speak behind your back. Well, that's pretty good exercise right, right there, isn't it? I mean, that gives us a lot to work on. In fact... It would revolutionize a lot of relationships here today. Let me give you the second one. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, Jesus said, Whoever makes you go one mile, go two. Now, you and I have no cultural context for this. It doesn't fit our world. Real quickly, Jesus was talking to a Jewish audience. 
And at this time, Rome ruled the world. And Rome, you know, they were, they were a conquering power, and I'm not saying they were genteel, but Rome was pretty good as conquering powers go. Rome only cared pretty much about two things. Number one, no riots, and they wanted taxes paid. And as long as there were no riots and taxes were paid, Romans were pretty, pretty liberal. But in that first thing, no, ta- no riots, R- the Roman government put Roman soldiers at, at every outpost in all captured lands. One of those, of course, was Judea. And the Romans had a law that they felt was, was pretty, pretty fair. The, the law was simply like this. If a Roman soldier came upon a young man in a Roman hill territory and he wanted this young man to carry his paraphernalia, he could demand that the boy carry his stuff for one mile. And only one mile. I don't know how this played out in other cultures, but the Jewish people hated it. Because, number one, they didn't want to be considered beast of burden. And so historians teach us that, that when the Romans came to the average Jewish kid, he, he was not going to carry the stuff any further than he absolutely has to. Has to. I couldn't remember if this is Josephus or one of the historians tells us that Roman kids would actually mark off a mile from their house in every direction with a little white peg. Now, my imagination runs away with me because I think about a Roman soldier who would come to this average Jewish boy who's out there in the field, and he would say, hey, kid, I want you to carry my pack for a mile. And you, you sort of see him, you know, snar- he can't say anything. He sort of snarls under his breath, slings it up over his shoulder, and he's kind of slow walking to slow him down. And you hear the soldier say, hey, kid, pick it up, pick it up. And finally they get to that white peg, and this boy's like watching, making sure that his sandal doesn't go one inch past it. Then he slings it off his back and mutters as he goes away, someday my country will rule yours and I'll make you carry my stuff a hundred miles. And that's the average, average kid. And to some degree it can be us. Now think about this kid that's heard Jesus teach. You just sort of get this picture in your mind. Roman soldier comes up to a, a young kid. Hey, kid, carry my pack. Yes, sir. Slings it on his back, begins to walk. And as he begins to walk, he says, you know, I've never been to Rome. What's, what's Rome like? Um, why did you decide you wanted to be a soldier? I mean, what got you into the military? Uh, do, you have any, do you have any brothers who are in the military? Was your dad in the military? Um, and, and tell me this. How do you feel about Judea? What's, what's, what's it like living here? And as they keep walking, all of a sudden they get past the mount marker, and you sort of see the Roman soldier say, Hey, son, I know you didn't catch this. We were having such a good time talking we, we, we passed the mile market. You don't have to go any further. And the kid says, you know, I had such a good time talking to you. I guess I'll, I, I just won't carry your pack another mile. You get what Jesus is saying now? Let me dial it up for us. You and I are part of all kinds of relationships. Family, love, work, friendship. With those relationships come expectations. True? We have a sense of what is expected from us to function within that relationship. Jesus said, loving means go beyond what is expected. Always give more than is expected. Guys, I'm going to tell you what. There are marriages in trouble in this room right now that would transform overnight if I could talk to a man and woman and get them to see what Jesus had to say, and they both decided they were going to go beyond, to go beyond, change everything overnight before nightfall. So those are a couple of good places for us to start. You say, Mark, I don't know. Do I love? Well, just take that 
as, a, as an example. Determine that you're going to treat people the way you would like to be treated. Don't wait for them to behave and then determine how you're going to treat them. Decide ahead of time that you're going to treat people the way you would like to be treated and then go the second mile. I need to close now. I've told you I'm going to appeal to your thinking today. I could appeal to your emotions, but I just think this thing about love, we've got we to quit loving only when our heartstrings are tugged. Because we'll never discover our life if we do that. We'll just be reacting instead of acting. This is something that we have to volitionally determine that we're going to do. And so for that reason, I've tried to keep this unemotional today. But I do want to be practical. Jesus said if we would follow him to love, we would find our life. So then, how do I leverage love to grow my life? Or how do I leverage love to solve my problems? If I asked that about money, you wouldn't have any problem answering that question, nor would I. If I said, how can you leverage money to solve your problems, you would say, Mark, do you have time? Or if I ask you, how could you leverage more time to solve your problems, you can answer that question for me. But money is not as important as love, neither is time as important as love. We, Jesus said it's the pinnacle. So then, how do we leverage love to solve our problems? Now, you know, I hope you'll forgive me for being personal, but I didn't know what you would, I didn't know what you would think your problems were. So here's what I did. I began to think about five statements that kind of sum up my problems that keep me from living a life I want to live. And if any of these resonate with you, then hopefully I'll, this will be helpful. We'll close and then we'll go home. Or you'll go home. I have one more service. <laughs> Does anyone but me feel this? I love myself, but I don't like myself very much. I know I love myself because the Bible says I do. You know, we talk about having a problem with self-love. I don't think that's the problem. I think self-like is our problem. You know why I have trouble liking myself? Because here's the thing. It goes back to that selfishness being the opposite of love. I'm selfish. I am selfish by my fallen nature. I inherited it from my grandfather Adam and my grandmother Eve. And so I want things. And selfishly, I pursue those things. Because I think if I had that thing, my world would get bigger and, and I'll be happy. But when I get that thing, it was my selfishness that brought me to that place. And I get that thing, and it doesn't make me happy. And beyond that, I don't like myself because I was selfish in order to get it. Guys, this is as simple as it gets. This is so simple, it's like breaking a BB. In fact, it could be so simple that some of you would think that it's too simple to bring in a talk. But I'm going to do it anyway. I like myself better when I love. I like myself better when I love. I'm sure I'm like you. You got people in your life that do crazy things, stupid things, things that make you angry. You ever just vent on somebody like that? I mean, it's like, boom, you let it go. What happens in that split second? You feel better because you've let your emotion out. You've said what you felt. But what, how do you feel at 1 o'clock in the morning when you're tossing and turning and you can't sleep because you're replaying in your mind the fact that you vented on somebody you love? You don't like yourself very much, do you? And on the other hand, I've expressed love to somebody who was unloving. At that moment, it didn't feel very good. I felt taken advantage of. I felt there was injustice. But I went ahead and was loving anyway. I can tell you at 1 o'clock in the morning when you're trying to sleep, you'll like yourself better when you love. 
So that's the first play that you leverage love. Is you will, you will always like yourself better. You, you, you'll always feel better about yourself when you express love. Now here's the second. And again, this, this statement may not resonate with a lot of you, but it does with me. The drama is killing me. Anybody else tired of drama? I don't know what it is. I don't know. But there are a lot of people out there like they're starring in their own soap opera and they want to pull me in. Why, why, why are people... Why, why do people have, you know, this is in neighborhoods, work, workplace, family relationships. Why do people have a drama going? Usually there's a good guy, they're the good guy, and there's a bad guy in the drama. And they want to pull you into it. Why is it? It's because of fear. We're living lives of anxiety. We're living lives that think that we don't measure up. And yet scripture tells us here is how love works. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. If you and I love, we never have to fear that somebody else is going to take advantage of us. And beyond that, we don't have to be part of other people's drama. Let me give you an example or an experiment. You go to work tomorrow and somebody there has already got a drama going. And they're telling you about some gal, some guy that's just horrible, and they try to pull you into the drama. Why don't you try this? Why don't you say, you know what? What would be really good for us is to be loving. I'm a, I'm a real believer. Would it be okay if we just stopped and had a prayer for this person who is your enemy? Now, they may never come to talk to you again, <laughs> but you won't have to deal with their drama. Here's the third statement that gets me, and that is, I'm being shut out. How many, and I say how many, it's ridiculous. All of us have somebody like this. Who is in your life that is doing self-destructive things that you love very much, and there's so many things you would like to say to him or her, but they won't let you talk to them, right? Or it's like you've just reached a place where you can't talk anymore. You ever have that happen? You love some very, very much, you just don't agree. You could keep talking, she can keep talking, but if you do, it's just going to be more trouble. Guys, this is what I love about love. Love can get in when every other voice is shut out. I remember this. I wouldn't have known this if, if this wonderful lady hadn't told me the rest of the story. Ten years ago at New Spring, we were going through a dramatic transition, and we were changing many things. And about three years into that transition, we just had to make a lot of changes, but they were radical changes at the time. Today, they make all the sense in the world, but they were radical then. And I honestly, keep, keeping it real, I believe they were the right things to do, but I had no guarantees. And all so many people at New Spring knew is that we were just making radical changes, things that we had done we weren't doing anymore, and we were doing, doing different things. And during that time, many people, many, many people left. And some left hostile, some left angry, some left saying, unhurtful and frankly untrue things about our ministry. But anyway, about three years into that, a lady who was honest to God, one of my heroes, I mean, when she gets her rewards, I'll be up in the balcony with binoculars because to me, she's a rock star for God. But because we were changing so many things, she was struggling with some of those changes and she came to see me and told me that, and she did it the right way lovingly said, I think we're going to have to find a new church home. And with all the things she'd heard about others who have left, I think she was concerned that I was going to say something like, don't let the door hit you on your way out. And I wouldn't have known this if she hadn't reminded me. I told her, I said, you know, you can go, but you can't stop me from loving you. And she said what I said that it was like, she said, 
I think I'll stare around and see what happens. You know what? At that moment, neither one of us knew what the future held. And, and we both at that moment had differing views. If we had kept talking, we'd have just gotten into more conflict. But that's the beauty of love. See, love can get in the room when no other voice can. Some of you have kids that are driving you crazy and they won't listen to you. You want to talk to them. You have grandkids or you have parents you love very much. And you try to talk to them. And the more you talk, the angrier people get. But the beauty of love is that love can get in when every other voice is shut out. I have one minute to go through two more. The fourth statement that I think about that shrinks my life is that people always let me down. And I don't say that, but that's true. Everybody's going to let you down. If you, whoever you know long enough, they'll let you down because they're imperfect and they, they have limitations. But when you love people, it frees you from the tyranny of having to constantly evaluate people based on their failings, their imperfections, and their flaws. Because when I look at you, if I don't see your imperfections, when you look at me, if you don't see my flaws and failures, if you choose to love me anyway, you're free from having to evaluate me based on my failures and flaws. The fifth one that I'm through. Well, let me say this. Anybody here have to make a lot of decisions? A lot of really important decisions? You know, if you looked at me on stage, you could think what Mark does is Mark is a communicator. Listen, preaching is what I get to do. It's the cherry on the Sunday. Management is what I have to do. Five and, five and a half days a week, I'm a manager. A day and a half a week, I'm a communicator. Most of my life is wrapped up in making decisions, hundreds of decisions. And I don't know if anybody feels that way, but I'm guessing all of us do to some degree. Do you ever wonder, am I doing the right thing? I mean, how do I know if I'm doing the right thing? How many of you can say, they didn't teach me this in college? This parenting doesn't come with a manual. If it does, where is it? And on top of that, it's like there's a different manual for each kid, right? How many of you wonder, am I doing the right thing? You know what? If you love, if you handle it with love, you can always go to sleep at night because you have done the right thing. Listen to what the Bible says. It's talking about love in 1 John 3. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. I, we talk to God all day long, but when's that time when it's just you and God? And you wonder, is God happy with me? The Bible says love is how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. We will always know that we've done the right thing if what we did, we did in love. Thank you for listening. We have just gone to the pinnacle. If we follow Jesus there, our life will explode. See you.